Hey everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk Podcast, episode 125. We talked early stage investing last week. We're going to move way into the other side of the spectrum this week. I had a chance to speak with Fred Lampropoulos, the CEO of Merit Medical. Uh, Merit was founded 30 years ago and uh, went public in the 90s and has uh, remained a strong public player. Uh, its market cap is around $3 billion, but most important, I think, to folks listening to this podcast, it's been a busy acquirer of uh, smaller medtech companies. It's made 13 acquisitions total over the last three years, according to PitchBook. And uh, a lot of those were smaller privately held companies. Some included a, that one included a spin out from uh, Beckton Dickinson. So Merritt's been uh, assembling quite a portfolio. We talked with uh, Fred Lampropoulos about that, about uh, what they're looking for in acquisition targets about life on the public markets, which is something we're going to explore at the MedTech Conference, which happens on May 29th and May 30th in Minneapolis. We'll have a panel uh, on May 30th uh, with the CEOs of Inspire, Vapotherm, and Tactile, all of which have gone public uh, fairly recently. And the CEOs will discuss not only the IPOs, but their lives on the public market. It's, of course, important to uh, for MedTech to build this second tier of medtech leaders who can move forward not only in creating really viable businesses, but also uh, to perhaps grow into uh, acquisition uh, acquirers in, in the future. So it's, uh, it's a, a nice development for the industry. Happy to talk to uh, Fred Lampropoulos about what Merit is doing, not only on acquisition front, but also in its businesses. And we also talked, uh, hit a few other areas, talked a bit about uh, Utah, where Merit is based, why it doesn't have more startups. And uh, finally, I stumbled upon a, a bit of uh, interesting information that I didn't know going into the conversation. So uh, Fred will uh, share a little uh, sort of twist in his uh, in his career. So it was a great conversation. Fred's a good guy. I really enjoyed talking with him. So I hope, uh, I hope you enjoy this as well. And I certainly hope you'll join us on May 29th and May 30th at the MedTech Conference in Minneapolis. Go to medtechconference.com if you haven't registered yet. And you can still use the MedTech Talk code to save $200 off of the current registration fee. And if you do that, you'll uh, get into the conference for under $1,000, which is a pretty sweet deal. So now let's get into this conversation with Fred Lampropoulos of Merit Medical. Well, Fred Lampropoulos, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I want to uh, get into uh, Merit's uh, current day operations. You've been quite kind of busy making some some acquisitions, and, and you're kind of in a, an interesting spot in medtech, uh, publicly traded, sort of a mid cap valuation. I would think there's a great opportunity for growth through M and A, and you seem to be uh, exercising on that strategy. But I, I think uh, it would benefit our listeners if we learned a little bit about. Merit. Now, you co-founded the company in 1987. Is that correct? Can you take us back to the start? Yeah, actually, I founded the company and then I hired three people. So, ah. you know, I'm, I'm delighted to give them the credit as well. But the facts are, is uh, yeah, I wrote the business plan, I funded it, uh, but I had three wonderful partners that joined me. And what was it uh, that led you to create this uh, this medtech company? What kind of opportunity did you see? You know, um, prior to starting Merit, I was the chairman and CEO of Utah Medical, um, a company that still exists today. And prior to that, because I think this is all part of the story, I was a United States Army Special Forces officer. So I left the military, woke up one morning, went to look at this company that was bankrupt called Utah Medical. And the next morning I was running it, ran it for seven years. 
and decided I wanted to go do my own deal and start my own company, and I started Merit. Did you acquire Utah, or did you come in as, as CEO? No, I came in as CEO. Yeah, I started at the top and worked down. And uh, what was Utah like when you, uh, when you left it? Well, it was doing about $10 million in revenue. I'd essentially taken it out of bankruptcy. I had helped to guide it into its new product lines. And very candidly, I taught myself the business. I had no previous um, you know, background in industry or in medical devices other than being an Army medic. That was pretty much it. That's remarkable. So how did you settle in on, on becoming a medtech CEO without having ever uh, even tasted the medtech life before? Yeah, well, uh, when I left the military, the first thing I did is I went to work. I was a stockbroker, but I was a poor kid, didn't know anybody with any money. And so I, I did that for a year and a half, two years, but it, it was pretty tough if you don't know somebody at the country club. So I didn't, um, but I followed a lot of medical device companies and there was a company here in Salt Lake City called Deseret Pharmaceutical, and it's really the mother company. Somewhat like Medtronics is in Minnesota, Deseret Pharmaceutical was really the parent company to all the companies here in Utah. That's an interesting point, and I do want to get into the Utah MedTech uh, ecosystem in a moment. But uh, so, what? Uh, talk a bit about the decision to 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 uh, to start Merit. You you obviously got a taste of the MedTech life. You you liked it. Uh, what were med, what were Merit's objectives when you started the company? What kind of company did you think you could build? Well, you know, I'm, I'm often asked that question about, well, did you believe Merit would be where it is today? And I suppose the answer to that is we did. I mean, within the first two or three years, we had built a company that was, um, you know, uh, growing very rapidly, and we bought almost 60 acres and. I remember people saying, well, you out of your mind, you've got a business that's doing less than $10 million or, or even a few million dollars, and why are you buying 60 acres? And I think that when we wrote our business plan, we wrote a plan that um, uh, was one that um, um, really looked out. I, I like to talk about it. That is a 100-year plan. And, and when I say that, people look at me a little bit funny, but I think it was you know, really trying to think for the long term because I felt that in the long run, the industry would consolidate, that you had to have some mass in order to compete with big companies. And I think we executed that strategy. So why did you buy so much, so much acreage? Did you expect to, uh, was that for the immediate start or did, were you looking uh, 10 or, or 20 years down the road or, or maybe five or 10 years down the road? I don't know. What, what, was, what was all the land for? So, you know, prior to, of course, buying this property, we, um, we uh, built out of it like an industrial park. We would do, you know, um, you know one cubicle of 5,000, not a cubicle, but one station 5,000 feet. And in a very short period of time, we built that to 85,000 feet within the first, you know, four or five years of the company. And then we bought the property. Um, so by that time, we're probably, you know, eight or nine, ten million dollars in revenues. Of course, now we're approaching that billion dollar, and there's a big difference between 10 million and a billion. And uh, I, I think it was, um, you know, that was our hope and desire. We bought we bought almost 60 acres for $500,000 in the south end of the Salt Lake Valley. It was a great value and bargain, and we thought, well, if we don't build on it, we can sell it to somebody. Um, so, so yeah, I think that was our thinking. And what did what did Merit become? Talk a bit about what the company is today. Uh, where are your strengths? And uh, we'll get into where you're looking in the future. But what, where are you right now? Well, I think that uh, I've always thought myself as a peddler and a salesman. And uh, 
I think very early on, we decided we wanted to be a direct selling company so we could control or be at the closest point of sale uh, to our customers. I think we have always been uh, prolific in terms of research and development and design, and we, uh, you know, we dedicated those dollars to research and development. So we spent seven and a half, eight percent of every sales dollar um, in research and development, which means we have a continually improving expenditure because of our sales. I think we wanted to, um, you know, be the best in the business, and we wanted to be um, a company that was you know, geared towards the needs of employees. As an example, uh, we have our own healthcare clinic, our own doctors. We have a new dental clinic coming online that will provide free dental care for all of our employees and their families. We have a number of things like this that are not necessarily traditional in business. So I think in terms of coming, we wanted to be different. We wanted to be bold. We wanted to have that long-range plan, and I think people who've come to work here um, understand that vision. They're part of that vision, and in fact, many who have left have come back and say it was the biggest mistake of their life. They should have stayed. Um, um, so, you know, I probably needed to do a better job of, of trying to make sure they understood the vision. That being said, um, you know, today um, we're, we have 14 or so manufacturing facilities. We are a global direct business in all of Europe. You know, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. We have modified direct in China and Japan. Um, but, you know, we got an order recently um, from, you know, we, we do business in South Africa. I got an order today from Reykjavik. Um, I get orders from Nepal. Uh, you know, any place that interventional procedures in cardiology and radiology are being done anywhere on this planet are our customers. How do you distinguish yourself in a, in an industry like that? Is it the technology? Is it the, just the service? What's the what is the uh, the characteristic that uh, yeah will get you the business? Um, I think it's innovation. You know, I, I, I the last time I counted, we had six or seven, eight hundred patents. Um, we uh, we do custom work, so some of the things that big big companies don't want to do, they just you know they have to have things that move their dial. But very early on, we started doing a lot of custom combination of products that met customer needs. You take the innovation. Here's an example: when it comes to inflation devices, these are syringes that have a measurement capability, digital or analog, that measure and deploy um, stents and balloons. Here's this company without coronary stents, and yet we're the world leader in inflation devices. And we compete with the likes of Boston and Abbott and Medtronics and others. And I think the key to it has been the innovation. Every year um, or so, you know, we'll develop a new product. And uh, where our, our competitors basically have won. You know, I have different sizes. I have different capabilities, analog, digital, Bluetooth. And the competitors just simply haven't done that. So our commitment to research and development and those research and development dollars and innovation are really what have continued and helped the company uh, grow. And even though you've mentioned these acquisitions, it's really the core business. Uh, if you take a look at our core, you'll see that in the last year, we're growing at double digits in our core business. Core meaning existing products or or um uh, you know, other types of product line extensions. And then the acquisitions uh, come online. We think they've been very good. We've been very selective. 
And many of those have stopped doing research and development because they have a product line and they're owned by, let's say, a, a private equity or venture business. And we, we start immediately upon acquisition of integrating them into the research and development and take their sales dollars and use the, the percentage that I was just discussing. And we start innovating um, and doing things they hadn't done for a while to get their new products and new ideas. And I think that just perpetuates itself. And that's kind of why we are where we are today. I'd like to take a quick break from this conversation just to tell you about the MedTech conference. We really rely on MedTech leaders to uh, help us put the conference together. And I'm very fortunate to be working with two great ones this year. Uh, I'm working with Leslie Trigg, the CEO of Outset Medical. And she is paired up with Kirk Nielsen, of course, VC with Versant Ventures. Two of them have uh, really built a top-notch agenda. You should check it out at medtechconference.com. And I had the opportunity to meet with Leslie at JP Morgan and ask her, what makes a good conference? I, I've attended a lot of conferences. I've listened to a lot of panels, as, as we all have. I think what always captures my attention in a panel and holds my attention is candor. Um, panelists who are really willing to talk not only about the good, but also the bad and the ugly, and be really transparent and, I guess, a little bit vulnerable about what they did and why they wouldn't do it again. And panelists who aren't afraid to be provocative and to get uh, the members of the audience to challenge their own thinking um, and um, think about the viability of ideas that um, may or may not have been evident to them in the past. That, that's what I look for in a, in a really good panel. All right, now you know what we're shooting for with the MedTech Conference. Please do join us on May 29th and May 30th. Go to medtechconference.com to register. Now let's get back into this conversation with Fred Lampropoulos. We went over the history of the company. Now let's start talking about the future and its recent acquisitions. Let's talk about some of the acquisitions you've done recently. Uh, you acquired uh, Sienna Medical. I believe you recently uh, made a deal for, for Define. Maybe that was a year or two ago. Uh, you, what sort of properties are you looking for in those sort of privately held, maybe owned by venture capitalists, owned by, by private equity-backed um, firms? What uh, characteristics are you looking for? Are you looking for FDA approval? Are you looking for a, a standing business? Or are you looking for a, a product with, a te- with potential? Yeah. Uh, first of all, there's a couple others you didn't mention, and I think they are significant. Give me the you list. Know, we, I'd love to hear it. Okay. Well, I mean, I, there's, it's, there's 40 of them or so. But, I mean, just in the recent history, we closed the Beckton Dickinson uh, deal where they had a forced divesture of their biopsy line because of their acquisition of BARD. Merit, Merit had already started down that path of products that were not in that portfolio, and, uh, and we, we looked at it as a natural enhancement uh, and an opportunity. We closed that last February, so it's been almost a year. And that was a great acquisition. Um, uh, it helped us to move down that path a little bit faster than we would have otherwise. And then, of course, we did Siana. I think the, the, uh, the motivation after Siana uh, was women's health. We think there are a lot of areas there. Merit was involved in women's health. Um, out of our uh, biosphere acquisition almost 10 years ago, where we use embolics um, to uh, treat um, uh, hypervascularized tumors, and this particular um, uh, area was uterine fibroids. And, you know, it's, it's just so helpful, and I think that's the other thing that drives this whole concept is, you know, it's not just business and not just dollars. It's the fact that you treat patients and you improve the outcomes and the human condition. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about. 
more so than selling a company or buying a company. Uh, and it's why we've had this longevity. We've, we, we're passionate about what we do and, and how important it is. So what qualities are you looking for in these markets? You talked about women's health. I mean, that's an area that's seen, that's seen growth. I mentioned you made some acquisitions in the spine market, which is, uh, which is a, a, an interesting space, a huge space, obviously, but one that's had some troubles. What, are, what qualities do you look for uh, in, in the areas you grow into? Well, we like them to be within the silos of the businesses that we call on. So although spine may have looked like an odd fellow, <clears throat> the fact of the matter is Merritt has been in that business for over 20 years providing various products to Kython, which was acquired by Medtronics. Uh, and again, it was going back to inflation devices to blow up those balloons. Merit was the primary provider for 20 years. So we were, yeah, so we were already in the business, at least a portion of the business. And then when the balloons and other types of products became available in there, um, you know, that was an area that we felt like we wanted to be involved in. So uh, it was kind of a natural extension of what we were already doing. But I think to maybe more directly, we're in interventional cardiology, interventional radiology, endoscopy, critical care, uh, and uh, oncology and spine. So those are the four or five uh, areas. We like things that fit within the existing um, parameters of products. We're not looking to, I mean, not that we wouldn't get out of that, but our primary um, uh, interest is in staying in those silos, which really could create billions of dollars for merit. So we don't need another leg of a stool, so to speak, to be able to be successful. We have all of the silos, if you, I can use that term. And so it's finding things that fit in those points of sale. Uh, of course, finding things that are scalable. In other words, they need to be able to grow. We need to be able to expand in both on a geo, you know, geographic, um, maybe from wholesale to retail, where a company may have been using distributors. We need to see that there's a market that's receptive to this um, innovation that we talked about and growth in that area with the right types of gross margins. Um, and when you add all of those up, there's, there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, you know, even today, um, you know, I've had three calls on three opportunities and I'm, I probably look at, you know, five to 10 deals every week. Uh, yeah, every week. Uh, and particularly now where the difficulty because of MDR, new rules that are coming um, in effect for Europe that require a lot more cost and a lot more scrutiny. Um, if you're not, if you don't have some scale, you just simply can't afford to do it. Um, you know, even in the U.S., uh, you have you know the GPOs, you have um, rep check, you have all of these various rules and regulations. And healthcare, in particular, the device side is getting more and more complicated and costly. And the thing that's often forgot, you can have a great product, someone's got to sell it. And I have that sales force. So we also are having a lot of companies, including some of the bigger companies, coming to us and saying, um, you know, we, we don't have a sales force to call on this area or we don't have this. Can you help us? So we're, we're now looking at those kinds of deals where, you know, big companies are coming to us and saying, uh, you know, is there something you or would you have an interest in this? So there's the venture companies, the private equity deals that don't have, um, you know, the sales force. They don't have the global aspect. There are bigger companies that don't have sales forces uh, and not on the call of point, but they have the technology. So, you know, it's, it's very candidly uh, ripe for the picking. And then if you're doing the internal development to go along with it, it's really an unstoppable combination. How are you, for example, you, you said you met, met talked with five, uh, five uh, deals or, or, or explored five potential deals, at least had conversations with five groups today, this, this week. How did those 
five sort of get in front of you without naming names or giving specifics, but are these products that you see out in the field and, and you come to know them then, are they brought to you by your own sales staff or are they brought to you by investment banks? What's the best way to get Merit's attention? I think the, the biggest areas, uh, they, they come from investment banks, private equity funds. They're physicians that call us and have ideas, but they take a lot of development time. And that's fine. We do those as well. They come from smaller boutique, you know, boutique firms. Um, they, they come from a lot of areas, but there's certainly a, a, a huge supply of them. And, you know, many, you know, 10 years ago, we wouldn't get a call. In some cases now, we're the first call. So you, your, your stock price, I'm looking at the five-year uh, performance of your stock price. It seems to have more than doubled over that time. Uh, you, what, what sort of growth sort of were you shooting for? Uh, and, and how have you been able to, and I know I'm just looking at stock price. You can, look, you can reference sales or whatever metric you'd like to use. But, but how are you, what, what do you account for this, uh, this growth that Merit is, uh, is demonstrating? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. Thank you. The, you know, I think part of this is for many years, Merit, I mean, I can remember these things because they were so offensive, but people would say, well, Merit knows how to grow the top line, but doesn't know how to grow the bottom line. Well, first of all, Merit's always been profitable, always. Um, maybe we didn't grow the bottom line as quickly as others would like it, but I think the thing that we did that allows me to have this call with you today is we stuck to our guns with the belief that you had to build out infrastructure. So we built a direct sales force. We went to Europe. We built facilities in Europe. We spent the money on R&D. And all these steps along the way, um, we wouldn't be here today if we hadn't made those investments, and yet we were criticized for them. So, you know, it's just part of the Wall Street game, and that is, um, you know, they want all the money now, they want all the earnings now, and they want to make their money now. But what happens three years from now if you cut your R&D expenses? What happens if you don't have global growth and expansion and distribution? It's not just having a product. You've got to get it there. You've got to deliver it to your customer, essentially, overnight. How do you do that um, in Russia? How do you do that in the Middle East? How do you do that in China? And that is you build infrastructure, you build and hire people, and that costs money. Well, we just got to a point where we had made these investments, and the incremental cost beyond that now started um, being less, and that meant that more profit was going to the bottom line. So everybody's like, you know, I had someone say to me recently, well, it looks like you guys got religion out there. Well, I just tell you what, we, we've always had religion. What we've been doing is we're investors. We're long-term. We had a goal. We had a vision. We had a 100-year plan. And, you know, I, I even say this today. If you're looking for a flip or a quick investment and that sort of thing, you've come to the wrong place. If you're looking for somebody who can provide steady, long-term growth, above-average growth, because that's another question we get is nobody else seems to do this. What's You know, how come you guys can? And I'll answer that if you want that to be a question. But it, 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 I'll ask the now, question. Consider the question okay, asked. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, and the answer, the answer is, look, it goes back to this core growth and this commitment globally. And you know, we have six facilities, seven facilities that are developing products. Oftentimes, they work together on one project. So it's that commitment to um, internal growth and then looking at the strategic acquisitions and, and just trying to work through that in a smart manner, and I think we've done that. And uh, so, but others can't do that, especially if you're in this mid-cap to, you know, small-cap type range. They don't have the resources. We have that base that we can rely on every year because of our quality, because of the innovation, and the trust, very candidly, of our customers. I mean, they're the ones who buy product. I couldn't do any of these things without my customers. And they're the ones who are responsible for buying products from us, and we take those dollars and we reinvest them. 
It's, it's, there's no magic to it. It's a, and you know, in terms of stock price, there's no magic to that either. You know, what do investors look for? Growth, increases in gross margin, operating profits, and net. And if you execute and have the time to do this, like we've taken the time, even when we were criticized, we stuck with uh, we stuck with the knitting, and lo and behold, here we are. And you know, and we'll continue to do this because we've kind of hit as long as we keep our senses about us. And we keep the discipline necessary to keep those expenses in check while still being investors. This is just kind of the first act of a very, very long play. Has your core business changed at all in the, over the past uh, five or 10 years or so when we're, we're talking about value-based healthcare, when we're seeing a Medtronic sort of move into uh, almost having a services element or having a services element to their, to their business when the larger players are sort of redesigning what being a med tech even means? Does that... Uh, does that reach down to to uh, to merits tier? And is this something you're asking? What merit will be in ten years? What merit will be in twenty years? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're not looking at those services and meeting the needs of the customer, because that's changing. If you want to be the same old rigid uh, company, and the, the customer changes, um, you know, we hear a lot about that in retail. But take that same concept concept and bring the retail over to the medical device area. And if you're still a big box, so to speak, you're in trouble. So you've got to have you've got to meet the needs, and there's um, good innovation, reasonable prices. Um, you know we have to spend a lot of money on automation to keep competitive, um, the service and delivery, so that they don't have to have more warehouses, and we can deliver something essentially on demand. Um, those sorts of things that you see, whether it be at Amazon or you know using FedEx and all the various things, but the ability to meet the customer's needs is essential to all of this. And whenever you try to think your customers need to meet your needs. You're in trouble. Mm-hmm. How would you, uh, what's your assessment of the current inventory of uh, acquirable properties out there? We've, we've seen a, a lot of uh, venture firms uh, dry up. Uh, we've seen a lot of firms out there, good companies out there that maybe don't have the money for another round, but they've got a steady business right now. And they're kind of caught in this, uh, this no man's land where it's, it's hard to grow the business, but it's even harder to get more uh, financing to, to grow the business faster. Is this an opportunity for merit? Is this a good time for you to be buying? Yeah, it is. And those are the kind of companies that we bought, companies mm-hmm. that um, either have to take their next step and go out and raise additional capital. They'll get additional contributions from their, uh, you know, their funders, and which means more dilution and more risk, um, whereas they can take that risk, let's say the commercial risk. Uh, you know, I mean, they've proven they can sell a product. We, you know, we don't take flyers or wouldn't this be nice? Isn't this great? You know, we just need to see some demonstrated performance, not always, but mostly we're looking for those kinds of situations. And to go out and dilute your shareholders, to go out and start up a sales force, which is very costly and mm-hmm. takes a lot of time. And I think I think the sellers are wise to say, let's take our money off the table and let's shift that commercial risk over to somebody that can really absorb that and has the experience. Not that they didn't have some experience in prior lives. But it's a different world today, as you pointed out, in terms of um, delivering products to customers and meeting their needs. So uh, there's a just a plethora of opportunities. Um, and I've never seen, again, so many. And they're going to continue to come for at least for the near, uh, you know, being because of these regulations, requirements, distribution. I mean, there's so many aspects of this that, you know, back in my day, the beginning, it is my day still, I think. Um, yeah, I hope. I hope so, too. I wrote the 510Ks. I did the selling. Um, you, know, I, you know, my partners and I built the product. 
you know, th- those days of being able to start a company, get a 510K and go any in the world, they'll never come back to that. I mean, that's the environment we were in when we started. You know, I wrote them. We got a 510K and we could go out and sell that product in the world. Now, you've got every country that has their own regulatory um, uh, theme, uh, and we have to go through and meet all of those in every country. You know, you can get the CE mark. But that doesn't mean you can sell everything in all those countries. You know, there's there's special requirements in Spain and Turkey and this and that. Um, you know, it takes three, two to three years in China. It takes this amount of time. Unless you have staying power um, in this business, you're not going to make it. Is that, uh, I mean, it was said for a long time and it, and it started to, to go the other way that the, the notion of going commercial OUS is, is a faster path than in the U.S. Is that still hold or no sir it does not um i think what we've seen in the last 18 months two years and what we'll see with the new mdr regulations that are going to be in effect in a year and that we've been spending millions of dollars on preparing for are going to be more and more difficult um for companies to go international um and because we are in that position um and and there's one other thing i think is important you know for boston or these other companies They have to have something that moves that dial. I discussed this previously. For us, you know, a $40 million company, a $10 million company that's scalable and meets our um, uh, criteria are things that we can, you know, uh, be active on. Whereas for someone like these other bigger companies, it doesn't even move the dial. It's more of a nuisance to them. For us, it's our sweet spot. And how do you view uh, the... The pressure on the medtech industry we're seeing recently, there's been some, I haven't really asked many people about this, but the the movies out there, the, the, there's some news, news articles about the, the whole predicate system and whether or not it's uh, it's it's good for, for, for patients. And it seems as if there's going to be some, some new pathways created at the FDA for regulatory approval. What, what kind of changes are you anticipating? Are you bracing yourself for significant changes or do you think this is going to just be some tweaks here and there, but nothing uh, nothing significant will will come of it? Well, well, let me go to the movies and the and the comments. First of all, I watched them, listened to them several times. Um, there were bits of truth, uh, but I think they were gross misunderstandings, exaggerations, and in fact, falsehoods in all of that. Uh, but there were some things that were were true and correct. I mean, it's been a long time since there's been a um, a change in those things. But I'd like to point out that the companies like Merritt and others follow the. We didn't make the rules. The governments make the rules. You change the rules, you adapt. And um, so, I mean, I think we we have to kind of look back on the legislative process and make sure that we really go look at the source. Now, should there be changes? Should there be, uh, you know, in terms of 510Ks and after, you know, market performance and post-market surveillance? Yeah, I think so. I think that all of those things should be done um, in a reasonable manner. I do think that in the European side now, They've maybe overdone it, and it'll be really interesting to see the just the, the burden that they're putting on companies, but more importantly, the burden they're putting on physicians. Physicians are going to be spending 25%, 30% of their time filling out paperwork. And, um, you know, they won't listen to us, but regulators will listen to those doctors because all of a sudden people will get treated, and it starts to affect their budgets, and all of a sudden it's going to get everybody's attention. So I think it's overdone in Europe. I think it's underdone in the United States. I think there are some changes coming. And on both sides, I think some of these things are, you know, uh, maybe overdue. But as we know, in all legislative processes, the pendulum 
has a tendency to swing just a little too far in either direction for too long and is trying to find something that maybe has a little bit better cadence in the middle someplace where we have ongoing changes. I think they are, in fact, necessary. But currently, as I look at some of these things, um, they're overdone. And I, I hope the U.S. gets to the point where we make some changes. I'm fine with that. And, and Merit will adapt like all the other companies that want to survive, they'll adapt as well. Two more areas I want to cover. Number one, uh, you're, you're roughly a $3 billion market cap, 2.93 as I'm looking right now. What is, uh, what is life like? You talked a little bit before about the pressures that uh, Wall Street puts on, on you and all, I suppose, all companies. But MedTech, let's talk MedTech in particular, given that that's the name of the podcast. What is like, life like being a, a MedTech that's publicly traded, hanging around the, the low single-digit billion mark? Is it, uh, is it difficult to get analyst attention? Is it difficult to generate excitement about what you're doing because you don't have a new robotic tool or something? Or is it, is it nice to sort of be out there, uh, sticking to your knitting, and, uh, and, and really not getting, uh, not being uh, caught up in the ebbs and flows of, of the things that, that may capture some of the larger companies? Well, no, listen, I think uh, there were times um, when we had a hard time getting uh, attention, but I think as we started executing better, um, started making more money, the capital markets opened up to us. You know, we've raised, um, I think, just about $350 million over the last uh, two, two and a half years. So I think the the window because of our performance, and so um, you know I'm um, I, I'm fine where we are. I think we there, there's a lot less companies in my space. You know many of them have been bought up. Uh, you take a look at Vascular Solutions. You take a look at Spectronetics, and and uh, these companies are gone. And in the world of ETFs and and those sorts of things, um, people are looking for companies like Merit that have the growth, that have a, a history that are in some ways, de-risked in terms of their longevity um, and where the risk comes down to one of performance. Um, so, you know, I think we're in the perfect, you know, absolutely the perfect space at the perfect time. And I'm sure glad we spent the time getting it ready for this, because I think, as I mentioned, I think the future of Merit is very bright in, in an area where there'll be many opportunities, um, both internal and external. Excellent. And I should end it there, but I want to ask one last question because I think you're in a perfect position to, to answer it. And it's about the, the Utah MedTech area. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, there's, there's a great history to it. There's a lot of companies out there. But if you look at the reports where venture capital dollars are committed to MedTech startups, Utah doesn't seem to you know break the, it doesn't, doesn't compete, obviously, with California, but even a Seattle and some of the other smaller areas seem to get more venture dollars. Do you think it's – how would you assess the startup med tech environment in Utah? Is it something that's just going unnoticed, or are you just not sort of a startup culture? You're more of a more of a, a established business culture. No, no. I think – well, I mean, I, I think that if we look back and we look at Merit, we look at Utah Medical, we look at Research Medical, we look at Ballard Medical, we look at all of these companies – um, I, I think that we have that pioneer entrepreneurial spirit here. Again, I think it really goes to the issues um, of the bar being raised so high that it's hard for anybody. Um, and then after 2008 and kind of the withdrawal of private equity and venture, that kept, you know, and some of that has come back. But again, here we are now. We're trying to get into the, uh, uh, to the capital markets is very, very difficult to do. Um, so, I mean, I think that's most of it. Um, uh, you know, I think the other thing is Utah is, is its own unique area here. Um, you know, one of the problems, uh, you know, we do have companies like Edwards that are expanding here that came here several years ago. Um, you know, we have a three and a quarter percent unemployment rate. 
Um, you, I don't know that we have all of the infrastructure that's net. When I say infrastructure, I'm talking about students and availability of labor and talent. We don't have all of that. And with a three and a quarter percent, if I were making an assessment of today, it's pretty hard if you're not here already to kind of draw away from companies that are already here. So people come in, but it's it's just not an easy task in a very tight labor market. I mean, we're I think ranked as the number one economy in the country, the lowest unemployment in the country. Um, and so if you're looking to expand or start up here, uh, that's difficult to do. And in terms of the venture capital, it, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 2004, I ran uh, for governor of the state of Utah. No, was I, not, I no. lost to John. Yeah, I lost to John Huntsman, who uh, oh, okay, is sure. our current ambassador to China. But I, I think that the thing I learned from that is they – they actually started up a program like called U-Star, and they did the fund of funds that would encourage venture capital in, and um, they just haven't worked. So there were great these great legislative types of uh, initiatives, and they haven't worked. I think it's going to be very candidly a company like Merit, um, like the ones – I mean, listen, we have Beckton Dickinson here. We have Bard here. We have a lot of the companies, but it's going to be those offshoots. But you're going to have to have a good idea, and you're going to have to have staying power. And, and, and let me just, if I could maybe close on this. Merit's initial public offering was $2.4 million gross, and it was really an angel round in the public arena. So I think the capital markets and the structure where you, you, know, you could go public in those days, essentially as a penny stock or a dollar a share, those are very, very difficult to do. We were fortunate. We had no money. We had no, you know, we weren't venture capitalists. We were a bunch of kids that had some ideas and that worked hard. And at least for, for us and for others, it worked out well. But those kinds of restrictions, you know, whether it be FDA, you know, whether it be um, the EC regulations, capital markets, venture, private, I mean, all of these issues. Um, and, and I think if I could, just on the, the private and the equity they have to have exit strategies. Oh, sure. I would just think with the proximity to California, though, that it, Utah would be like a natural place for someone to, from a VC firm from California to find a very inexpensive deal uh, there, a very inexpensive Yeah, investment. well, they, they come here to ski, they leave their money, and they go home. And that's just <laughs> fine with me. That's just fine with me. So uh, we have Sundance right now. They're all here right now. That's right. All the VC guys are here. <laughs> Thank you very much. It'll bring $180 million uh to Utah over the next uh, seven days, and thank you very much. And I don't want you. To, this can we say something off the record now, or is this still recordable? This is uh, uh, this is recordable. So let's uh, let's say oh, okay. that for well, after I was going to say they used to have this thing about in Oregon where they say come and enjoy yourself and then leave. That's in Oregon. I don't want to say anything more than that. But I, I appreciate people <laughs> come to help our economy, and uh, you know um, I like those slopes, and I like our. I like our prospect yeah, in, in Utah. It sounds like you're happy. And I, I'm going to, if I had a researcher, I'd fire her or him for not knowing that you ran for governor because I would have clearly uh, asked about that. That's uh, an interesting effort on your part. And good for you for, for trying well, and, to get and involved. That, that, and that really goes to the very issues that we were talking about. Let me just, I'll briefly just say this. Uh, the, the government, the local legislative uh, offices and things here, were supporting companies coming from outside of Utah and then forgetting about the Utah companies. We got passed over while they were giving money to other people, and I didn't like it. And I thought, I'm not going to just sit by and watch this go on. Utah companies are, are important, and uh, it was the old if not but for. So they favor these other guys. They don't do that anymore. Utah has the best research and development tax credit um, in the nation, and there's a bill that Merit 
sponsored and carried through the legislature. So, you know, we've made sure that um, companies that are here are looked after and that are not, you know, looked, uh, you know, um, uh, looked over. And uh, so, but a lot of that was because of Merritt's active political um, involvement. I mean, we have our own lobbyists. The legislature is open right now, and my folks are up on the Hill making sure that Merritt's interests are protected and promoted. Fred Lampropoulos, this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Well, thanks for thinking about us, and I appreciate you taking the time as well, sir. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's MedTech Talk podcast. And yes, I did say this week's because we're going to start uh, delivering these podcasts to you once a week again in anticipation of the MedTech Conference, which, of course, is happening on May 29th and May 30th. So uh, expect a podcast a week. Lots of great stories out there. Lots of people reaching out wanting to be on the podcast. So uh, trying the best we can to accommodate them. One reason I'm able to do it is the agenda for the MedTech Conference is nearly complete. So do go to medtechconference.com. Check that out. You'll see we have our keynote interviews with Ashley McAvoy of Johnson & Johnson, Kevin Lobo of Stryker. Lots of other great conversations as well and great leaders in MedTech. So please do join us and please do note that uh, the festivities actually start on May 29th. For the first time, we're having an opening reception for all attendees of the conference. So you can come in, get your, uh, get your networking going, and then start the conference the next day, ready to go, already connected to your, uh, your colleagues in MedTech. Finally, if you wouldn't mind helping out this podcast, since we are uh, resuming our weekly uh, our weekly uh, cycle, it'd be great if you could uh, share some of these podcasts with your colleagues. You can actually text them to folks. You can email them to folks. You can share them on social media, of course, LinkedIn and Twitter. Love to see the podcasts up there on people's uh, people's feeds. And of course, the more people listening, the better for everyone. I think it just uh, really creates a, a great community for MedTech. So. Thank you for listening. Thank you, I hope, for joining us at the MedTech Conference on May 29th and May 30th. Go to medtechconference.com to register. Once again, if you use the MedTech Talk code, you'll get in for under $1,000, which is a pretty sweet deal. And again, tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.